welcome to the Mangal Media Show. I am Editor-in-Chief Efe Levant. Mangal Media is supported entirely by your donations. If you like our content and would like more of it, please remember to visit our Patreon site. We also publish a diverse range of books and collectible prints from our online shop. We have just released two new publications from our small press, available both in digital and hard copy format. Our letter home is a short comic by Ayman Makarem and Hisham Rifai about Beirut and homesickness. Our second publication, Nostalgia in the Periphery, is a limited edition bundle of serigraphy and digital prints. You can read all the stories in this collection for free from our website, mangalmedia.net. In this episode, we will be in conversation with Anna Sekulic to talk about her new article, Threads of Life. Our conversation mostly revolves around the reconciliation of academic work with personal experience. We explore the opportunities and restrictions of scholarly work when it comes to dealing with complex issues like family history. Hello, I am with Anna Sekulic, uh, the writer of the article Threads of Life that we have published quite recently. Hello, Anna, how are you? Hi, Efe, I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you very much. Uh, first, uh, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you said, I'm Anna Sekulic, and I am a historian of um, the Ottoman Empire in Southeastern Europe. Um, so I basically work on the history uh, of Bosnia and inter uh, interreligious relations there. Um, but I'm also uh, been I've been engaging in um, kind of expanding from there and uh, writing for um, more um, wider audiences and exploring not only the history of um, you know the the region I came from, but also kind of um, examining how, how being a historian and historian of the Balkans, um, how it kind of speaks to uh, me and my own family history. So, so kind of it's a two-way two -way, um, project is becoming actually. Mm -hmm. So in the article itself, you kind of talk about the, uh, the disparity between kind of like your own experiences and history as a discipline not being kind of uh, an appropriate tool to be able to like express uh, your personal relationship with history. Has there been any progress on that front? Have you been able to integrate your personal experience into your scholarship in any way? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And I, I think, I guess the short, short answer is that like, I don't, I don't think that there's been progress, but I don't think they're necessarily you know, I, I don't think there's kind of an end or a final answer to that. What I'm enjoying right now is precisely the um, the, the 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 kind of project of of doing that, and I think that's how I see uh, the article that I, I that I wrote in the end. It wasn't. Uh, it really kind of stemmed from uh, that. You know, those of discomfort, or, or actually a number of discomforts, both. Uh, a discomfort with silence and understanding my own history with, uh, within my family and, and within the specific environment that I came from, and the discomfort of being kind of uprooted and, and kind of, you know, finding myself in a very different, uh, uh, both natural and, and cultural environment, and then also kind of discomfort with trying to understand how to actually write history of different uh, communities, histories. I mean, as 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 you can know, I mean, we're just so kind of bound to to the written sources and to kind of a a very particular type of genre of written sources, and uh, that's in, in a kind of in in a way it's natural. That's like kind of what we do. We kind of like look at the traces and go for kind of you know for writing, but uh, it can become a problem for um, kind of understanding the past, not only of, of myself or like of, of you being kind of a subject of a writer, but, but of like many different types of communities. So I worked on, uh, uh, you know, Ottoman Bosnia and uh, uh, Catholic community there. And the, the, the kind of the both the wealth and lack of sources really uh, uh, come into focus. Uh, uh, in that extent, so what counts as a source and what doesn't count as a source. And now that I'm actually telling you this, 
I think that is also one of the preoccupations of the essay. Uh, and, and, and actually, and maybe even one of those, like kind of the, the things that, uh, or, or larger questions that connect um, kind of the exploratory writing work I've been doing uh, now and, and, and something that I've been doing as a scholar, uh, always kind of trying to think and rethink what, what the source is, what a document is, like what is, what counts as, as, a, as a, you know, kind of testament to something in a story and what doesn't and kind of trying to push through those boundaries that have sometimes been really set as very rigid. Here, um, I mean, I kind of struggle to to summarize the article because mm, yeah. there is there's a lot going on. Uh, there is kind of like your personal journey, and the, the way that you've written it is you've managed to kind of separate them into almost flashbacks. It doesn't follow like a linear timeline, or it doesn't mm. follow a thematic timeline but it just kind of like themes emerge and fade in and fade out. There's like uh, descriptions of scenery mixed with your uh, experiences of like trying to get your visa. And I, I guess they kind of uh, lead into each other through metaphors. Uh, the one unifying theme that I have been able to kind of like point to like very clearly is kind of like, almost like a sense of disappointment with history writing itself. Mm. Uh, perhaps you would like to, I mean, that disappointment with history writing itself kind of extends into like all the other metaphors that you are making here also about like the misunderstanding between communities, uh, between Serbian and Croatian communities here. The fact that you have tried to express your personal story in like, uh, in other publications, but they have expected you to behave like a historian. Like all these things kind of like lend into each other. I, I was wondering maybe if you would want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know honestly where to begin. Like what you touched, like the kind of the structure, the, 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 the disappointment, the history as a discipline. Um, I think, let me just, start with the theme of disappointment. When you, when you first mentioned it, I was a bit kind of surprised because I thought that that's not necessarily how um, I saw or kind of lived through this article. I think that if I wouldn't have gone into history, I would have never produced any of those. Like I would have never, like it would be virtually impossible for me to kind of get to that level of kind of thinking and seeing myself and where I come from. So that's actually an essential part. And I think perhaps in my in my own way, I actually wanted to celebrate it in the essay. I don't know if it came through or not. We can talk about that. Um, so, so I didn't see it really as a disappointing, but it has its limits. And I think the limits though, are not necessarily, you know, the history writing per se, but it's more the, if I can say so, like the history establishment, the, the certain culture that exists in it of who gets to tell what stories and how, what kind of uh, structures of telling history get repeated over and over again, what kind of voices get to be kind of more exploratory and, and, and kind of pushing the boundary of their work and what kind of voices are constantly locked into one and the same narrative uh, and kind of suspended uh, uh, between, you know, a kind of a several metaphors that can keep going around over and over again. Um, so, so for me, that is a disappointed and disappointment and, and you know, kind of writing about the Balkans in, a, in, in this kind of um, uh, uh, way that is always kind of like doing, you know, suspended between kind of violence and, and, and empire in always the same stories of who belongs to what nation. I mean, even just as I'm saying that, it just sounds so crude, but, but it, it just feels that the people there, the voices that exist, the stories that, you know, have kind of been produced over through centuries are, are 
kind of you know reduced or boiled down to to several kind of types and they kind of keep going and 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 it almost feels like there's no other way to say it and i you know i mean that is something i'm actually increasingly interested in um both as i'm writing the history of the communities I work on in Bosnia, which are also kind of suspended and kind of like rejected in very kind of particular, uh, through very particular categories and, and kind of positioning myself as a scholar from the Balkans as a person from the Balkans. So how can we tell stories of people that will resonate with anybody on earth? And, and who gets to tell those stories? Who gets to be universal and who, who always kind of like, you know, I don't know like, you know, keeps telling, like, one and the same thing. Uh, um, I feel like I, I should, I owe you an explanation about why I've said that it comes across as you have been disappointed by history. Mm -hmm. The one part that I thought uh, that gave me that impression was, you talk about how you have kind of got into history as a way of intellectualizing your anxiety. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that to me kind of like raises the thing about like I don't know maybe this, these are my associations but I usually associate intellectualizing um, something like an anxiety or a fear or intellectualizing an emotion mm -hmm. I kind of associate it with not being able to confront it like I, I associate that as like trying to escape from it yeah. Uh, I I consider that to be I don't know something that stunts my emotional growth. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I had the impression that did, have you felt like um, mm -hmm. being involved in history in this way has prevented you from uh, exploring your own feelings and sentiments about not just about the region but even about your family. Uh, yeah. No. I, I, um... It's it's now kind of like you know kind of the way you mentioned it makes me think back of that phrase and and what is really kind of conveyed in it and I I think you're totally on point in, in saying like what kind of associations you have with that but for me it was a thing though like what I meant by it uh, was to kind of I'm just trying to think. I think kind of the end result was actually very liberating because it was an escape from a very particular type of history. And, and you know, I mean, there are a million ways of kind of history writing and kind of the, how it gets canonized in what part of, of the earth and stuff. And for me, kind of getting into that Western liberal academia as a historian was a very liberating move with all its kind of, you know, problems and stuff kind of to get away from from that creation context and i can't imagine myself trying to enter professional academia at that time in, in in croatia like that that would have been liberating it would have definitely not been liberating the way you know i see it uh uh because of the the kind of the politics and stories and and, and ultimately i think kind of people and culture that it attracts i couldn't see myself there but but in that kind of american way um it was liberating, although it's also, and that's something I understood later, uh, it is exoticizing and it also is something that will lock you in, in a very particular way. So like if you're doing Balkan history, you're doing Balkan history and you have nothing to say on anything else on earth. So it's just kind of really, uh, you know, like pigeonholing you there. Um, so, but ultimately I think, I, I wouldn't say that it was a disappointment but you know, as I say, and I think what is it the last or penultimate paragraph of the whole essay? It's it's something that is kind of getting into the discipline, um, engaging with different writings, getting to do the research, getting to know all kind of other peoples and methods and theories. Like the whole kind of new horizon opened for me, and and it was just like absolutely transformative. But at the same time, as I say, it's also like blinds you in some ways that uh it, it kind of you know the way you can it, it kind of erases this very kind of human stories it's it has a tendency to assign categories and kind of pigeonhole you somewhere but 
in, in that scene where we stand in a church with my husband, my father and I, you know, we're just like three people that are each mourning our own losses and, and, and are kind of like finding ourselves in a very, um, I don't even know what to call it, like a very profound moment in many ways. And I don't think there is like, you know, a historical method to, to really tell that. You know, you just kind of have to live it. Like, I don't think history can tell that. And that's why I think kind of going uh, or stepping away uh, from, from that genre and turning to kind of more uh, literary and poetic methods can be very liberating, but it's also, in a way, I don't know. If in the article, to... actually, when you're talking about that specific ins, uh, that specific instance, you talk about, mm, you say something about like I, I sat there and I wondered how this moment could be expressed in history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I imagine sources, kind of like diaries or like personal letters, maybe things like that. Would they be? something that comes close to expressing those kinds of sentiments through, through like a historical analysis? You know, I, I, I don't know. It, it might be. Um, why I said that is because I had actually a very clear idea of how similar situation in that particular place in kind of Dalmatia in the triple borderland, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries where kind of all sorts of people and, and empires and agents kind of mingled precisely in that area or how that has been, you know, described in, in, in literature. And it's always through this kind of like, you know, the intermediaries, the people that are ambiguous and they're kind of breaking boundaries. And you have, you know, you, you spot a document, you document that uh, somehow, you know, puts a Muslim and a Venetian together and kind of we like, I don't know, just kind of go crazy like, with it as if it's like something really so kind of special and, 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 and almost extraordinary and it kind of it's a springboard for all sorts of theories of alterity and otherness and, and ambiguity um, but and, and that's how I entered that like that's what fascinated me as I say also in the essay it's like you know, it was the first time I saw the language of kind of possibility of celebrating being together and finding it intellectually uh, exciting and challenging was in history because, you know, that was not celebrated in, in uh, around me where I grew up. And I grew up in pre precisely such a family that wanted to kind of really silence those uh, and, and kind of hide those feeling and never really celebrate the togetherness. Um, so, so in that sense, um, that's why I was essentially wondering, like, how, how would they write about us? Because I don't think we, <laughs> there was like some big theory. We we're just kind of three people that for all sorts of reasons kind of came, came together in that spot. I had the impression when you were like writing about your family in the article, uh, that your family is uniquely interested in kind of talking about how these different communities can coexist together. The way your mother kind of like goes, like travels with the entire family to your father's village in Dalmatia. Mm -hmm. By the way, we have totally not summarized any of these like things that are happening in the article. Um, but yeah, you talk about like, um, like your father's village in Dalmatia that was abandoned. I'm not mm -hmm. going to get into the politics of it there, but your entire family travels from Croatia uh, I'm sorry, Istaria, <laughs> uh, was it? From Istria. From Istria to Dalmatia to visit your father's village. And mm -hmm. over the years, your mother helps out your father to kind of like, because it's been looted and there's even like mm -hmm. you find a dead goat in it. And then uh, your mother helps out with your father to clean it up. There's a part where you talk about like how you devote, like uh, dedicated one of your thesis to your mother and father. Uh, for um, I don't remember your exact words for, but for creating the possibility of like different communities loving each other, something of that nature. Yeah, for 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 kind of celebrating love and not hate. I think exactly. Long lines. Yeah. So you, I, I had the impression that your family was exactly the sort of place where you kind of like at least thought about, maybe mm -hmm. not like intellectually discussed because you'd never mention anything like that, but at least the possibility of coexisting together. I, I have 
weird reaction against the word coexist because of that sticker. It just makes me yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. angry. But, you know, like, living <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, so I, I had the impression that your family, this was like an active issue. So this is a really actually complicated question for me. And it's something I was probably at the at the heart of of what I was writing. And, and I think there is still a lot for me to kind of explore and come to terms with when it comes to that question of like what it means to have a kind of a, a, a ethnically mixed family in, in a place where I came from. And, and you rightfully point out that you know, there are a lot of instances in, in the essay that you can see that like my parents are kind of committed to their own kind of mutual projects and they stick together through this like really horrendous uh, uh, period where like seemingly everything is against them. And that is absolutely true. And they were, I think, committed to to, to, get, to togetherness, let's put it that way. Um, but there is an other side to that, that there is a huge discomfort and, and, and kind of, <laughs> like again, kind of- You get into those, that more when you're talking about your grandparents in the article. Yeah, and, and there is a kind of whole other layer, but you know, there is something at the, at the kind of heart of our family that is both kind of celebratory and that is like also, I think, laced with shame. Um, and, and things that are kind of really never spoken and that there's a lot of kind of instances of discomfort of like kind of dealing with the others. So my mother would, I don't know, and it's maybe not still time for me to go into that here. So I don't want to go into too much detail and stuff, but, but you know, there, it's definitely true that my you know, mother is, uh, you know, always helping my father. They're really together taking care of that house. They really brought it up from the ruin and preserved it. It was really a project and, and, you know, like, thanks to them, we still have the house now. Um, but that there was always like tension regarding that and kind of regarding going and connecting with the rest of the family and, and you know, like regarding the, the, the kind of whole kind of question of belonging and naming things and really kind of claiming them um, unreservedly. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, I can't really just kind of say right now because it, it really, it, it takes, it's, it's in the little things of like you kind of being in, in that world that you just kind of catch, not, you know, it's things both said and unsaid. And, and I think, yeah, that's for me a lot to, to unpack. But, but it's an interesting topic and one that I think I personally haven't seen explored in the, post-Yugoslav context of, of the kind of the mixed marriage. I kind of hate that word, but like I, no one's come up with anything better or different. So I, I just like, I'm kind of using it. I think just today, maybe it was on Twitter. So I don't know how much, how reliable it is, but someone said that I think it was like almost a million and a half people at some point in Yugoslavia were kind of product of this kind, type of marriages and were kind of, you know, part of this type of families. Um, and usually we tend to take them as like, oh yeah, like we're kind of, you know, uh, overcoming the ethnic and religious boundaries, it's real togetherness, but, but it's an interesting phenomenon because it can be both, it, it can reinforce stereotypes and it can reinforce boundaries, this type of a community and communion, and, and it can transcend them. Um, so if I would you know, go on and kind of explore that. And I would love to write about that kind of like family aspect. Um, those would be the directions and those are kind of the big ideas that I would frame it in because um, it's, it's a really actually a complicated phenomenon, I think. And, and one good thing that I love coming from this article uh, is that I've heard from a lot of people who you know, said to me that like just how deeply it kind of resonates with them. And, and so I think that there's like a lot of us out there that have stories to tell and, and put this kind of alternative experiences um, uh, out there and kind of talk about them um, that they don't often like, you know, get talked about. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's really true. Um, I think there's been like 
even kind of within the Yugoslav context, like it's like, you know, particular stories that get told and those that just kind of linger somewhere in between. What you said about like inter-ethnic marriages and their kind of like possibility for having kind of as much room for love as they have for like awkward silences or like uh, exaggeration of the caricatures that mm -hmm. uh, different ethnicities might have among each other. Uh, it makes me think of like I, back when I was an anthropologist, I was kind of studying uh, kind of, I, I hate the word interracial because like race is not supposed to exist, but interracial <laughs> couples uh, in, in Taiwan. And there's like a huge phenomenon that you might have also seen that of like white dudes going to East Asia to yeah. kind of like either get married or, you know, like or for like sex work. And a lot of the times there were like these uh, white men who had kind of like semi long term or like long term like Asian partners. Mm -hmm. And they would a lot of the time say like really racist stuff, you know, like about the IQ of Taiwanese people or something like that, you know, some, something outrageously racist. And then you would, uh, and this was back in the early 2010s when uh, everyone believed like before Donald Trump got elected, when mm -hmm. like a lot of people thought that racism is not a thing anymore. So like mm -hmm. when you have, when you imply that someone might be racist in that moment, it was kind of like, it, it was like a big shock. Huh. And a lot of these people would kind of uh, defend themselves that, or like de deny that they're being racist by saying, that, oh, how can I be racist? Like my wife yeah. is Asian. Is that, I mean, is that like a more extreme example of the kind of thing that you were defining or for the Balkans context, could we, is there like a, does it translate? Um, partially, I think. I think as you said, it's, it's a, it's a, perhaps like the extreme. Um, and and I, I want to stress that I'm, at this point, I'm really talking only about my own family. Of course. So, so I can't really be talking. And even that I kind of still struggle, honestly, let alone for the whole Balkans. But it's more, it's it's like, there, there's definitely, in, in what I witnessed within, within, you know, people, among people that I grew up with, it's, you know, there, there are kind of, this repurposing and employing stereotypes, but also this kind of discomforts with the with the other, like the, the the kind of you know casting the other one, the kind of counterpart of your marriage and stuff like as the other. And once I I heard someone say, um, you know, like what is a true partnership between two people in in a kind of a relationship, a marriage or whatever? It is when you kind of the two kind of come together and uh, you know, kind of transcend and kind of are able to among themselves build something new that that isn't kind of, that, that it kind of goes beyond from where they came from. And, you know, like this really resonated with me when I heard it, because I think, you know, in, in my case, maybe my, my parents weren't really able to do just that. Like when you have kind of people coming from different backgrounds or, or different kind of cultural upbringings and that very kind of charged, uh, moment, I'm not sure that they really were able to kind of leave all that behind and really kind of truly embrace and create something new of them. Um, it sounds like a judgment now, and I don't know how I'm comfortable saying that, but um, it's something kind of along the lines that I'm saying. So, and, and it's, you know, it's not something that we would witness on like, Kind of saying, oh, like my 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 husband's a Serb, he's like stupid or something, or he is like evil or whatever. It's not like that. It's just this in kind of embedded in the in the kind of subtle cues of everyday life that you kind of learn and you are very, or at least I was, extremely um, you know, you you feel it with every nerve of your body, but you're not even aware of it. And it's it's for me, it was only when I entered my 30s and really when my mother passed away that that things just kind of like began, I don't know, exploding. Like it's as if I have like started seeing everything around me and my own parents in a, in a very different light. Hmm. As if like, you know, my kind of education and career in, in major life terms and, and this kind of uh, baggage and stories that I've been carrying with me for a long time as they all kind of came together and 
and and it's I don't know it became a process of like really rediscovering who I am and what why I do what I do and and also what the work I do actually really is and what is it for. Mm. Let's get back to the work. Let's get back to a little bit easier waters. Um, so earlier in this conversation, you said something about uh, how studying history, although it reveals quite a lot, it can also uh, make things invisible. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in my kind of own experience with uh, academic work, I've always felt that it kind of the way that it makes things invisible is by making uh, the scholar kind of attracted to particular kinds of information mm-hmm. through how interesting it is from a, like a theoretical perspective. Like uh, back when I was doing it, with like um, Latour was still like a huge thing, uh, actor network theory, it was like super popular. And we would kind of like, uh, did we disconnect? Did we disconnect? I think I think we're back. Ah, okay, we're back home. Uh, so th- there was like uh, that's the first one that comes to my mind. But there's a lot of kind of uh, even mid twentieth century French philosophy that's like always in vogue, and a lot of academics mm-hmm. like when they study the world. I suppose this must be the same in history, just as it is for like anthropology. Like they're like, oh my god, look at this phenomenon. It's exactly like what Hegel says. You know, <laughs> I, I, I I often feel like. Um, like scholarly study kind of invisibilizes um, the object like of our study through what it defines as being interesting. Is that the experience you've had yourself? Yeah. Um, in, in my work as a historian, absolutely. And I think what, so, so kind of working on a non-Muslim community, the, the Franciscan Catholic community in Ottoman Bosnia, for me has been a lot about I don't know like if I should be saying that but but it was almost like like I feel like everything I've done was in some sort of a reaction to what like has been kind of like said over and over and over mm. again what I just kind of counted as history and and I really thought like why, why don't you see this other thing it's right here like why don't you see it <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, in, in terms of kind of making, you know, what, what is visible and what is not and what choices, uh, in, in, in frameworks determine that, uh, is absolutely present in history too. It's not only about the, 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 the kind of theory. And I think to speak a bit more concretely, perhaps, uh, when it comes to the, the Ottoman Balkans, I think it's just like one and the same, wait, I need to think, um, story of, uh, you know, the, the Christian suffering and kind of the Muslim supremacy and the kind of like, you know, waiting of a particular type of people to kind of escape to freedom from the Ottoman Empire. So this kind of like very crude uh, 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 things. A lot of scholarship that is coming out now is not like this anymore, but but the, with the communities that remain obscure, which is the Bosnian Catholics, for sure, that is very much uh, the case. And um, what I'm doing in my work is showing that uh, no, they weren't just poor peasants. They were actually engaging in all sorts of intellectual and religious work. Or the religious work that the Franciscans were doing under the Ottoman Empire was actually innovative. It really kind of engaged a lot with the uh, uh, with, with Islam that was kind of really taking root there. There were very interesting interactions between two religions. It's not that everything was always the same from time immemorial, which in, in Ottoman studies, that was a problem with even how the Islamic studies themselves, like the, the kind of Islam or being a Muslim was actually seen uh, because of the kind of the whole understanding of what the, the kind of trajectory of change in Islam is, that everything was set in the medieval period. And then when it like came to the Ottomans, it just kind of took that that ossified Islam and it was always the same. And it's like absolutely not. There's been a lot of excellent work done in the last decade showing that there were so many 
um, kind of you know transformation and changes and engagements with with both the Islamic world as well as Europe. So and it has to be studied in its own right. And I'm kind of trying to do something similar when it comes to this kind of Christian communities in, in the Ottoman Empire as well. They're not just kind of these ossified remnants of previous Catholicism, and then they kind of get transported into the 19th century and kind of like get plugged back into into the kind of Catholic currents. But there is a lot of uh, all sorts of interactions and transformations that are significant for what they are. They, are they, they produce meaning and we need to take them seriously if we are to understand the world of, of, of these people and how they came to be what they are. And um, th there's been just very little interest to, to do just that. It's much easier to kind of come and say, yes, Catholics suffered. Yeah, friars, they, they, you know, they were the kind of big patrons and they uh, were always very dedicated only to Catholics and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and not really seeing all the kind of complexities and how that actually Catholic order and group and the kind of subjects that grew around them into a community that we now call Bosnian Croats they were very much the product of all sorts of forces within the Ottoman Empire, and we need to see them as such, mm. and not just as someone that is kind of sailing through or surviving and scattered the empire to be true to the Catholic roots. That mm. is not the case. <laughs> One of the perhaps the most exciting thing I find in contemporary like social sciences, including history and sociology and anthropology, is this like question of agency that I think. Uh, your discussion of uh, Bosnian Catholic kind of starts the border on as well. Like when I first read Orientalism in my tender years by Edward Said, like I, like a lot of people was like, oh my God, we have been victimized, especially because like I was studying abroad as well. Like, and I was kind of like subjected to a lot of like how a lot of people like reflect about Turkey or about like Islam in general as a religion. And I was, I went to university right after 9-11 too. So there was that, like I, I entered the politics department the year mm -hmm. after 9-11. So there was a lot of like freaking out about what Islam is. And there was this, all these where, ideas. Where was that, if I can ask? Where uh, in, in the UK, in Southampton. Um, so there was a lot of like ideas about like the clash of civilizations and things like mm -hmm. that, uh, that were floating around uh, or kind of being resurrected. And my, in my first kind of like, um, discovery of Edward Said, I was like, oh my God, like, this is what they've been thinking about us. And I can see that they're still thinking about us like that. And it's really powerful to see like Edward Said is like talking about 100, 200 years ago. He wrote the book in 1970s and here I am at the beginning of this new millennium and it's still going on yeah. uh so it just kind of like made me focus on kind of like my victimhood to like a tremendous extent but mm -hmm. then as i then like as i boiled in it and it comes and goes in different stages of my life but like when it comes like mm -hmm. i feel like i have no uh, i feel like i have no agency no power like all the creativity that i do like Everything mm -hmm. that I, all the marks that I have left in this world, they just get like completely erased mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. the thought of like what essentially these white people think about. And I think what makes social sciences super interesting right now is the fact that not only do we, re like, not only is there like a trend for reclaiming all the interesting and exciting things that like colonized people have created, but also <laughs> all the horrible sides of our agency as well because like yeah. we are also no strangers in both of the parts of the world that where we come from where this yeah. kind of like oh they're trying to destroy us ideology yeah, yeah, yeah. served for kind of like all kinds of other savagery neither of them should be excusing each other no absolutely and i mean that's actually a really interesting um aspect of studying the Franciscans historically and their kind of monastic communities and the way they kind of actually build their social basis within that Ottoman realm is that, you know, when you think of agency, they definitely are uh, very active agents and uh, they're just like kind of doing and producing a lot of stuff, but they're also really claiming in producing that very idea of victimhood because it serves them other purposes. They're kind of playing many different sides and, and, and are able to kind of spin different stories. Now, this is not to say that 
um, that being a minority group in the in, in in the Muslim empire was an easy thing, or that kind of the victimhood that they were kind of peddling in a way wasn't just kind of like invented, or that it wasn't real. It wasn't easy to be that kind of a, you know, like a friar in the Ottoman Empire, and you really, you know, like I mean, it was definitely a hierarchical system that did not, uh, that 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 didn't give people liberties and 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 kind of the suffering, some of which they 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 describe is real, and I think actually has to be taken seriously because we, I think, I think there is a tendency, and we can, I don't know, that'd be an interesting discussion, just within the. Ottoman studies, but there has been a tendency, I think, in the last 20 years, let's say, when kind of the, the, the scholarship, especially in the in the Western academia, try to really counter the voices coming out of the, especially the Balkan mm-hmm. nationalist historiography that always maligned the Ottomans and just like kind of cast them as the, the ultimate problem the ultimate source of any problem, uh, you know, when kind of the, the the yoke of the people and whatnot, you kind of know, you know the spiel. Uh, but but kind of then going almost in a different in, in in a different direction, almost kind of celebrating the empire, which I don't think we should like malign it or but but I don't think we should also celebrate it. And I think sometimes the uh, the, the the kind of struggles and tragedies of people get overlooked. Um, in the in, in in the name of like kind of like warding off those bad earlier narratives, I, I, I like I still have like I think about it a lot, but I would perhaps also like to kind of write about it or actually just speak to my colleagues. It's not something we speak of. Like there there is a sometimes it seems like kind of a tinge of some strange imperial nostalgia that um, makes me uncomfortable. One. I think. I, I it makes me think of like two things. Like one of them mm. is the kind of uh, from the theoretical side is uh, the possibility of this agency argument being kind of used as a way of like completely negating all kinds of imperialism in general. Like I mm-hmm. have witnessed that in 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 anthropology quite a lot. Like for example, in discussions of consumer culture, I have seen there's like a mm. huge proliferation of literature about that, which kind of claims like like jeans in India, Coca-Cola in Trinidad, you know, like they get like this location and product, location and product, and they all kind of like create this argument of, look, I mean, we immediately assume that these products come into these countries and take they take over the local culture. But if you look into the specific ways in which this culture kind of internalizes or like recreates this product to express like an authentic self, we can see that there is actually no colonialism involved. This is merely giving these people um, like an extra tool to be able to express their authentic selves as opposed to taking away. There's that side. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think for the specific case that you've mentioned, it gives me the impression that there's a lot in Western academia about like their own confrontation uh, with their own Islamophobia. And so they might be swinging from one extreme to the other. Uh, like I always find that kind of thing to be almost like a patricidal obsession that a lot of Western academics have. They want to destroy the thing that they came before them. It's almost like a beautiful trip that they enter into whatever field they find themselves in. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, you know, I, it's, I, I wonder whether whether the, the, the kind of impetus for that is this kind of, you know, structural uh framework of of how you know we get jobs and how we kind of exist in this profession that somehow everything needs to be shattering like you know when we even mm. say the, the groundbreaking like just constant like you know like <laughs> the constant need to as you said like just literally break and shatter and destroy what came, came <laughs> before because that's the only way apparently you can kind of add meaning and produce knowledge it's it's strange <laughs> I sometimes like in, in things that you know I've worked with some I, I kind of felt both ways actually that sometimes that there are things that I feel definitely need to be smashed and they strangely resist. Um and, and then there are things that we can actually learn and build on without really necessarily breaking them. But um yeah, I don't know. And I think it also comes to the earlier conversation, the, like the discussion we had about like how academia by kind of uh, focusing on what's theoretically interesting, it kind of limits the scopes of what kind of resources and information 
you find interesting because when you're obsessed about demolishing the thing that came before you like you might be sacrificing something from like what you as a person with real feelings find interesting in the matter that you're studying mm -hmm. yeah do, do you have like a specific thing in mind or not for myself but like for example i think about uh what was his name have you read eric wolf like he's always the example that comes to my mind he, he what was the name of his book europe and the people without history i think it's kind of like a really generalized history book and he kind of like makes this argument about like how durkheim was wrong about history because like they you know he has this position of uh how history like how societies are kind of like develop their ideologies according to what benefits them, like according to mm -hmm. like their time. And he's like, no, no, but like societies are not these isolated things. Instead, like they have like these relationships with each other and that's like how history progresses and stuff like that. And he just, uh, he kind of uh, assaults all kinds of nationalism from the basis of like, there is no like separated societies. And mm -hmm. I find that it's like fixation on trying to destroy Durkheim makes him like completely unable to see something like how nationalism for some societies it is actually something that has liberatory potential if they're living under occupation for example because yeah. like he's only focused on you know this patricidal rage against Durkheim like mm -hmm, he fails mm -hmm. to see the actual reality and the interesting ways that people just exist you know? yeah no, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you like actually kind of do historical research and, and the question of sources in that sense is also very important because, you know, what is it that you choose to read? What do you have access to? What are you not reading? What are you not, what do you not have access to? Um, and it's always kind of, to me, fascinating to just think of like how much actually, like just how little we actually base our arguments on we kind of all kind of go grand i'm I, me included i think everybody but but when you think of like when you think of what constitutes life um and and things that people do and just like the, the crazy amount of stuff that you don't have access to and that you like will have two letters or like ledger or document and stuff and you're kind of really building these stories and, and how much is missing from the picture, it's, it's, I don't know, it's crazy, actually. I've heard that in Ottoman history, there's like a big gap between people who study primary sources and people who do like kind of analytical work based on those primary sources. Is that, is that, has that been your experience as well? Like I've, I've been told, for example, there's a lot of um people in kind of provincial turkish universities who are kind of like taking um ottoman sources and they kind of like transcribe it into turkish but like mm, yeah, yeah, they yeah, almost yeah. do no analytical research and then there's people who do analytical research and kind of, they both kind of look down on each other because of yeah yeah i mean that is a, I, mean, I don't want to talk much about it it's like i don't even know really actually what to say at this point but the, the kind of whole specter of this kind of philology is really kind of so like present or haunting the ottoman studies and and there's this kind of never-ending debates which one is better to really kind of go deep down into you know how to read a certain i don't know word or like how to decipher a document or death there or whatnot and then those that want to be can be broader but the one you so so that that has just been such a i really associate with the, with the ottoman studies and it has to, something to do with the way i think it started in the west that it came from kind of philology and kind of studying the language itself and and, and the fact that you do need it i mean that's a kind of whole other thing that you actually need to do quite a lot of learning and training to to have access to kind of most basic facts and to work with most basic sources so <coughs> it's an interesting question right there but what you said uh, and i've heard specifically about those in those academics in Turkey and the kind of politics of granting PhD titles on, on that kind of work of, of transcription and stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's some, you know, I, I think, I don't, I don't know 
let's say it's peculiar to Turkey. Maybe it is in the other Balkan countries. I really don't know. But yeah, there, there's been some resentment about kind of those that just kind of like, quote unquote, simply transcribe um, and or rather do any analysis. But I think, I, I don't know. I think it's a thing I, I that know, goes... I think, I think it has, I think those questions probably have more to do with the, you know, the, the institutions itself of granting, granting titles, granting positions, the whole question of tenure and the, this yoke thing and all kinds of stuff. I think that's more probably related to that. I don't I know. Think, I think there's a resentment that goes both ways though, because like there's a kind of like a very old school understanding of doing history, which is kind of all about sources, primary sources, like how, how well can you read? Like how many sources can you read? Like how much do you understand? And there is that school of thought, which I think uh, those provincial universities and people transcribing a lot of my other types of historian friends, they're like, their command of the language is really good, like better than mine. But they simply don't have any analytical thing. It's the, and then the old schoolers look down on the more analyticals and they see them as kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, like, great, you read Foucault, but, you know, can you read? Because um, of there, you know, uh, so it's it it almost like reminds me of the dispute between architects and engineers in a construction site <laughs> about like who knows better. I mean, yeah. Welcome to the Ottoman studies. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a it's a tension that is intensified by the inter interdependency of these two. Two types of work. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I think also it's a question of of, of training and um, accessibility, and, and who gets published where and how. Then the kind of the tradition it comes from, like what constitutes Ottoman studies. I don't know. Obviously, I think about it quite a lot. Oh, in, in kind of trying to to you know kind of position my own work and and think where I fit and all of that and you know how I relate to my colleagues, but I don't have an easy answer. But the, the tension is there, and that some sometimes the resentments are kind of flying high. It's definitely the case. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't want to like kind of make judgments yeah, right now like I, I don't think in the end one is kind of better than the other and stuff it's just of course yeah of course. um is there we the one aspect of the article that we didn't talk about we only have like a brief amount of time but the, the, the first thing that really excited me about this while you were working uh on it with Adnan was how quickly we've decided that this article was going to be like intensely um it's going to contain a lot of photographs <laughs> and, yeah. and i think it has really brought life into the article maybe you might want to say a thing or two about like how how you came to that decision or how that happened and like what it adds mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I don't even remember. It's just kind of the, the actually the whole process, the way we all kind of decided. You guys said yes, and then you. I think it was like less than two days. You said, "Okay, I'm sending the article for Adnan to edit," and then he's like, "Yeah, I'm adding you too." And then we were like kind of it became this several month long joint project, which was like you know, some of the most exciting and most unnerving time. <laughs> Has it been unnerving for you? No, it was like, you know, it's just like, I, I love working with Adnan and I'm still thinking, you know, I wish I could just send him all my work. That could, like, I was like, I, I still, I actually now catch myself thinking, I wonder what Adnan would think of that because we had such a good relationship in, in the process and I couldn't, I just couldn't have imagined a better person to work on this with. Um, I think that became clear to me sometimes halfway through that that it, this this piece needs Adnan to, to to kind of understand it in a way that perhaps no one else would, or not many people, or like venues that I was kind of you know kind of you know sending it around and stuff. Um, 
but it was unnerving in a sense that I felt like this huge sense of urgency. Like I've been working on that piece. I had been working at that time on a piece for a long time. And I just really, I wanted it so badly to exist in the world. And he was just really kind of, you know, relentless. Like we're not gonna, we're not gonna release this thing out into the world until the last comma is in place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the right thing to do. Uh, and it was a, such a, I don't know, it was such an exciting, it was a very exciting time. And so when the photos, I think I, I, I didn't plan on photos when I was also offering it to other places or when I kind of, you know, uh, I talked to you about it. I knew you guys did the illustration for a long time. We were thinking about that, that we were going to include it. But, you know, the moment we you said, oh yeah, like let's like unrelate it and we just kind of started and it just, I was like, why don't we do photos? Like it just kind of felt immediately that I think you guys would be interested and that you were open to experimentation and kind of being more creative and that we could take it in whatever way we felt like, you know, we could. And I don't know, it just like, it's like I have these photos and then you love them and that was it. And then there, there came videos and all sorts of stuff. And, and the videos were also funny because, you know, I went to that trip, I, I went hiking with my sister and as we were kind of driving and stuff, I just like, yes, this is going to be a video that is going to go to the essay. It just was like, yes, this is it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic. It was a fantastic process for me. Uh, it just uh, one of the other things that I really appreciated when speaking about the editorial process was how you and Adnan both had the sentiment of like, we, we don't want to explain context. Like, this is oh, not yeah. about explaining context. That was like the number one thing that like um, that I felt was like really strong kind of like editorial and kind of like creative drive to mm -hmm. leave context as absent. And mm -hmm. I feel like both your, it functions in a way, your descriptions of the landscape and the photographs themselves is, it's making like a really bold statement that says, like, here is the context, you know, what mm -hmm. other context do you need aside from the place where everything has happened? You know, it, it makes a really bold and powerful statement, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly it. You really put it perfectly. Like, here's your context. And that's something that uh, I think was the first thing that clicked between me and Adnan. There didn't have to be a big discussion. We just understood immediately. He knew what I meant and I knew he really understood it and he was totally on board. We were not going to make it into some politics piece where I'm like, I'm going on and on about something. No. And, you know, that kind of brings us back to what we started this conversation you and I with now that, that, I essentially want to share and tell a story that anybody can understand that it's a story of silence and family and kind of the, the internal struggle of violence and war and love and, 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 and landscape. And I mean, I, I'm just drawing these words that I, I would hope are, you know, universal and that other people can feel it, that you do not need to know who did what in the war in that particular Um, which I felt pushed by some. Hey, okay, can you hear me? I think you're back. Uh, I can hear you now. Yeah, what is the last thing you heard? Uh, what, the last thing I've heard, like, uh, you don't need to know who's done what during the war. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think the bottom line was that, you know, I didn't want to go over explaining in this kind of typical Balkan fashion of telling about ancient hatreds and retelling over and over again and who the Croats are and who are the Serbs. And all of that, uh, as, as some other venues wanted me to, and to kind of 
I, I love it. Some people really say like that I need to kind of be enlightening the audience in that. And, and you know, I, I tried to kind of twist the, the article and I wrote so many drafts. I just have all these folders lying around of like one attempt after another. And then at some point I just said no. Uh, and then I came to you guys and probably the best thing I've done. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll publish many more articles from you in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, I would definitely love to. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for both agreeing to this interview and having written that article for us. Well, thank um, you and for doing all the work that you guys have been doing. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Goodbye. Ciao.